Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Vicky Parrott, who is a writer, road tester, and video presenter. Welcome to Rearview, Vicky. I'd like to start off by asking, why motoring journalism? I suppose the, uh, the proper answer is that my dad was really into cars, and that kind of rubbed off on me. And uh, I was very much into writing and literature, and when I was at uni... I was sort of driving down the road in my, uh, my ropey old Nissan Micra and I could name all the cars on the road, all the trim levels. I just read about them all the time and I was like, well, why not have a go at this? And so I went and did work experience at Auto Car and the rest is history. We will explore that much more later on. Uh, you just flippantly just oh, it's just history. That No, 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 no. There's more to it than that. Um, I'm going to go back like I normally do and find out, and you've alluded to it already, but uh, when did you first get interested in cars and... Answering the second part of this question already, did anyone help you along with that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, well, like I said, my dad was uh, my dad was really into club rallying. I mean, he was big into rallying. He sort of helped organise the Wales Rally and all this kind of thing, and he was clerk of the course down at Wiscombe Hill Climb and all this kind of thing. And so I grew up with stories of his antics in his old rally, Ford Anglia, and all this kind of stuff that he did. Got dragged around loads of classic car shows. Um, and he was—he always loved cars, and um, that really rubbed off on me. And uh, I sort of took quite a, quite an interest in it, and uh, and so that was kind of the big influence on on why I I liked cars. Um, and uh, and it sort of went from there, really. Yeah. What was it initially? Was it the the sound, the smell, the sights? What do you know? I don't I do remember. I think I think it was just a drama of them, really. I think it was just the sort of. It was, they're just so cool, aren't they? They just sort of, they were the epitome of everything that was fun. They're fast, they look great, you know, they're kind of, they're just, you know, they were what I wanted to be involved with. So it was kind of, they were just so exciting. And I did love, I remember going to Beauty Museum when I was a kid and stuff and like the smell and all that kind of thing. Just, it's such an evocative thing, isn't it? And all the, you know, all of that. And because dad was so into rallying as well, the motorsport thing sort of bit quite hard. So, you know, we'd all, it was a family thing. We'd sit down and watch the Formula One and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So it was always, the car, cars were always there. How my mum stayed out of it, I don't really know, but she managed, but yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to switch off now while they <laughs> rub it on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you, you mentioned there that you um, you like writing. I, I presume that was a big thing during school. That was something you really enjoyed? Yes, I have to say that reading, uh, reading and writing has been Probably my first love before cars. There's always this ongoing argument in motoring journalism, isn't it? Is you know, are you somebody who loves cars that writes about them, or are you somebody who loves writing and and you know likes cars, sort of thing? So it's are you a writer first or a car enthusiast first? And honestly, I'd say I'm a writer first. Mm -hmm. I, I've got an enduring love of literature. I read. Um, actually, I'm really big into science fiction and fantasy and all this kind of thing. I have ambitions of actually writing a novel. Um, in those genres and that kind of thing. So I do have this kind of huge interest in literature and writing and journalism outside of cars. Yeah. For me, as a career, it was always going to be motoring journalism, if at all possible, because that was kind of the writing that I loved. It was the writing that I read most in magazine form, and it just it was such an exciting industry to be involved in. So, yes, I'd say that literature is my, is my first and, probably, and uh, probably my most enduring love in my life, and I read all the time, obsessively. But uh, even so... <laughs> Um, yeah, writing about cars was always a dream because it was it was my two, both of my loves, I suppose. So yeah. But I, I think it's interesting that um, you do like literature because I, I I have no science to back this up, but I always feel that it's important that people get as wide a breadth of experience in different styles and different genres and stuff like that that can help 
form you as a writer not that i'm at all much of a writer i struggle with tech as anyone who's seen my twitter twitter handle will see i can struggle just typing in 140 odd characters <laughs> um but it, i i do think it's in it if you can experience different genres, you can bring some of that to it, and it's not then you're not just doing a formulaic. Here's t- tick tick the boxes. Yes, I've done that. I've done that. You know, you can bring so you can express your your personality more. No, it's absolutely critical. Is that and it's actually whenever I advise uh, sort of work experience students or anything, anybody that I've sort of helped along the way, that's nearly always my first piece of advice is read widely read everything you know read the sports section because that's quite interesting because they often do very much the same job that motoring journalists do because they're talking about the same thing every day and have to find a different way to talk about it and an interesting way to talk about it so that's kind of in a, in a similar fashion what motoring journalists do that is the great challenge of motoring journalism is often you're trying to say ultimately the same thing but in a different way in a different way and keep it exciting all the time especially if we get to the b segment suvs <laughs> the ride is comfortable is not comfortable or whatever you know all this stuff so you have to to make that exciting and interesting and to increase your vocabulary and to really kind of you know broaden your perspective on it it's absolutely critical that you do read read widely and i do mean you know novels newspapers magazines of complete you know fashion magazines are interesting the way they write in those all this kind of stuff it's really critical i think if you're going to be a good writer you have to you have to read broadly and take inspiration from all over the place so yeah yeah absolutely uh, so you're working through school and uh, writing is a big thing, obviously with the aim of merchant journalism. Did you uh, go off to uni to to follow that or did you get um, did you get into the motoring journalism before then? No, I um, didn't specifically sort of set my sights on motoring journalism until I was at university okay. in my first year. And we had a module where you had to go and do work experience sort of thing. And I'd actually, up until that point, I'd been contemplating law because I'm, I'm also, I really find law very interesting and I did well at law A level. Um, but I was sort of dead set on either being, you know, I wanted the full criminal barrister, you know, stand, stand up and stand up. The and wig, the, the cloak, the exactly. objection. Um, <laughs> I wanted that. I didn't, I didn't want to be, you know, um, doing conveyancing in an industrial estate around the back end of Bracknell somewhere for the rest of my life. Like that. That was what I wanted to avoid. Um, and you know, so well, the drama of it. Yeah, well, it was. I just find criminal law very interesting, but I find corporate law deathly boring. Mm. Um, so uh, the the truth of it was that at uni, I, I did English literature because I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I wanted to toil my way through the decades of training it takes to become a barrister, let alone the cost. Uh, and when we did this module, I was like, I, I know I'd had this epiphany I mentioned where I was driving down the road and I was like, oh, you know, I read car mags all the time. I love cars. Why not just go and you know, see if they'll take me for work experience? And when I was on work experience with Autocar, um, uh, that week I was there, they did the not um, to 100 to naught, which was kind of a famous feature that they, that they run. And um, I just remember I stood there at Bruntingthorpe and there were Aston Martin DB9s and Oh, it was just incredible. It was just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of machinery in a scary, I remember. Oh, my, it was just, I just couldn't believe it. Hidden in a sweet shop and all that. And I was like, you can make a living from this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, and it, so it went, it went from there. It wasn't really until I did the work experience that I was like, yeah, this is definitely something that, you know, I could pursue. And I actually went back to Autocar and did, God, over my, the duration of my university course and, and immediately after, about probably about nine weeks of work experience. Mm-hmm. So basically, I did so much work experience, they were obliged to give me a job by the end of <laughs> Is that what they said? Yeah. 
slavery laws or something along those lines. I don't know. But... Through minimum wage, we now actually have to employ you. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so that was it, and that and that solidified my mind that I was going to do motoring journalism, and I was going to not. I wasn't going to, you know do the law thing and that was kind of that was where it went where did you what sort of cars were you first let loose with oh i had a mighty mighty Vauxhall astro estate that my dad owned uh which was uh the turbo diesel and it was uh, i loved it yeah in sort of that nice beige goldy metallic color that they had <laughs> so did you pass at 17 17 and two days <laughs> uh no i didn't actually i passed it was i think it was about eight or nine months after i turned 17 that i passed because my unfortunately my sister when she my sister's um three and a bit years older than me and my dad taught her to drive or started teaching her to drive and then she drove our family car into the village hall uh somewhat unexpectedly and uh, after that my dad refused to teach either of us to drive <laughs> so um so i got lessons after i turned 17 and it took a bit longer for me but yeah it was uh, and the village hall and everybody was fine by the way so that was all that was all it was okay in the end but yeah my dad never recovered from the trauma so <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine the, the helplessness of it yeah, we should sorry. be stopping <laughs> <laughs> sorry katie for calling out on that one but uh yeah, so that was so. Yeah, I passed just before I turned eighteen, and that was my first car I actually got to drive about in by myself with my dad's Vauxhall Astra. Until I eventually, my first car that I actually owned was a Renault Five, which I bought for fifty quid off a friend of a friend, and uh, it was yeah, I absolutely loved it. It's not it was, a bad it start. Was, yeah, it was great. How long did you have that for then? Only six months because it it had six months MOT on it when I bought it. And I suspect now, in hindsight, probably a slightly dodgy MOT. I'm not sure. It kind of had that. I mean, bear in mind, this was a long time ago. And it had the sort of, that sort of Gallic kind of, it, it sort of lent to one side all the time. This, this brand. So I suspect there was something slightly dodgy up with the suspension as well. But um, yeah, so I had it for six months and then it put it for its MOT. And it was going to take like 400 quid to get it back on the road. So I was like, do you know what? I think we might as well just buy a different car really at that point. Because it was... Um, Bless it. It was it was wonderful and it was freedom and I loved it to bits and it never actually let me down. But it was one of those cars where you had to know to the precise millimetre where the choke had to be in order to get it to start because other either otherwise it would flood or it wouldn't start and it was kind of like you know you had to kind of pat it three times and walk round it anti clockwise five times or something to get it to start. You had to know it. Kids miss out on that today. I know. They don't get. They don't realise the uh, rituals. Yes. That we used to have to go through to get a car to it. No, you can't. Until it started, you can't open the passenger door because things will go wrong. And it's also today they just get in, turn it, and it starts and off they go. They're spoiled, spoiled wrong. Yeah, I I think they miss out as well. I think you you really learn something about cars doing that. You sort of learn that, I mean, they did have this intrinsic character because it was, you know, no other Renault 5 will be quite exactly the same as that one. There was, you know, because it was so beaten up and old anyway. But it was just the fact that you, you had this kind of great connection with the car because you, you'd learned it so well that you were like the only person on the planet that could actually get it to start reliably every time you needed it to start. Yeah, it's like, you, it's like a person. You, you yeah. know what the, what's going to trigger them and what isn't or what's going to yeah. mollify yeah. them perhaps. Uh, I mean, much, much as that is inevitably intrinsic mechanical unreliability, I suppose, or it, it actually comes across to us, I think, as a, as a sort of character and it, in some ways it makes the cars more lovable. But... Uh, Nonetheless, I did. So yes, as ever, with your first car, I did love that car dearly. It was great. So what did you move on to? Well, after that, I got my Nissan Micra, which was actually also a great thing. Um, I think I paid 700 quid for that, so it was like... Which version was that? That was the first Mark oh, okay. 1 Nissan. Right. 
post facelift. So yeah, it was. Um, so it had the. It was, which I think was a slightly prettier car. And it, I have to say, it was great that car. It handled really nicely, and it was also it was like some kind of Tardis. I mean, you could get everything in there. It was ridiculous. It was this tiny car, but you fold the seats down, and for a uni student, it was unbelievable because you could just get everything in there. It was brilliant. And work. And, and I mean, contrary to the Renault, which was very sort of, I suppose, characterful in a perhaps slightly argumentative fashion, <laughs> the Nissan was absolutely lived up to the stereotype and was absolutely bulletproof. It was just, it was just, you know, ticked along, smooth as you like, just completely reliable. So it was just wonderful um, in that respect. And it had a brown interior and it was a four-speed gearbox. And I remember there was, because I went to uni in Bath, and I remember vividly I had a, um, the journey I used to do regularly back from Bath to my parents in, um, in Wimbledon, in Dorset. You go up, uh, it's one of the steepest hills um, in the country, actually, and it's... Uh, and um, it's, uh, uh, it's a great drive, but in that car, I had to, you had to literally stop and put it into first in order to get out. <laughs> I just remember doing this, this massive queue of cars behind me. And that was part of the, well, I mean, other than the fact that obviously I, I loved cars and wanted something faster anyway. I kept the Micra until the end of uni. And um, after that, I inherited uh, a few grand. And so I went out and bought a um, Toyota Celica GT4, and it was the ST185 version with the flip-up headlights. Okay. It had been lightly modified, so it had a sort of... (laughs) There's a dangerous phrase. Um, so it had um, it had adjustable adjustable dampers all round. It had a turbo boost on it, which you need on the run into work, obviously. Obviously, well, actually, the original that era of GT4, it it wasn't great for because it was a heavy car. So actually, you, you can see it even just looking because I dug out the old road test that Autocar did on it, um, and you can see like the, the lean on it was astronomical even by that period. Yeah. You know, given this thing at that time was going up against like the Delta Integrale and stuff. It was pretty, um, it was, yeah, it wasn't so great, I don't think, originally. So actually, I think the damp has improved it. And, you know, it had the Momo steering wheel and it was putting out about 250 brake and all this stuff, permanent four-wheel drive. It was just the best experience ever, going from the Micra to that. And I deliberately, even though I didn't need to do it, I did the journey to Bath and back in that car, almost first thing I did in it. And um, just going up that hill was the best feeling ever. I was like, I can overtake stuff. It's so good. Yay. <laughs> oh, I loved it. It was fantastic. Inevitably, it had you know a straight through exhaust that would set car alarms off as well. So it was the full on, the full on, you know, kind of boy racer experience or girl racer experience, I suppose. But I, lo- I loved it to bits. That must have been fun going into the auto car car park then, or starting up as you left, yeah, making absolutely. everybody quickly have to lean out the window and press press fobs. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It got, it got me uh, got me no end of credibility rocking up in that to be fair in the car park. It was pretty cool. And to this day, actually, one of the cars I aspire to own is a science edition of that of that model because they did that. They changed all the cooling and stuff, and it, and, it, and cooling was an issue with it. Yeah, so it's uh, I just I'd love to I'd love to own one. They're still quite cheap as well. You can get a decent car, you know, science edition for like six or seven grand, I think. So oh, gosh, just, don't tell anyone because the way prices are at the minute, the, the people will be moving away from Fords, where you know because exactly. you have to sell two houses now to buy one. Yeah. <laughs> £100,000 Sierra, buy, buy one of those, I'm telling you, yeah. it's great, it's really cool. <laughs> so now you're at Autocar, obviously you don't need to own a car ever again because it's this constant uh, litany of vehicles to test all the time, isn't it? No, it's probably not that at all. Well, well no, I did buy cars when I was at Autocar actually, yeah, so I went from the Celica, because the problem with the Celica, uh, love it as I did, um, I had, it was doing about 16 to the gallon on a good day. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no, it's no fun driving a GT4 around when mostly you're spending your time trying not to get actually engage the turbo. You're literally looking at the gauge trying not to engage it. <laughs> <laughs> like falling around in it. And so in, in the end, I actually sold it to my sister who ran it for quite a while. And uh, I bought a Peugeot 205 GTI 1.6 because mm-hmm. as a car, you don't buy something sensible. Obviously, you just buy something else kind of slightly silly, yes. but slightly more economical. Um, and that was spectacular as well, that car. And you know what? I bought that in, I think it was 2008, for 650 quid. Wow. Really nice, 1.6 205 GTI. It was being used as a video prop um, by a company in um, Kingston, just up the road. And um, they'd left it in a corner to sort of mould for a few months because they'd finished the video or whatever and didn't know what to do with it. And, um, yeah, and it had a little dink in the rear wing, but otherwise it was lovely. Red, um, had the manual sunroof. It was really lovely. 90-odd uh, thousand miles on it. I picked it up for 650 quid in 2008. Can you imagine what that would be worth now? Oh, so, yeah. the, the, the hatred is now flowing from the yeah. internet at your luck and, <laughs> and good fortune there. But... Well, well, it wasn't that good fortune because I, sold, I only sold it about a year, 18 months later because I then got added to the staff car list at Autocar, so I couldn't justify running a car. And uh, I, to my, I should never have sold it, but I did. And uh, do you know what? I couldn't sell it for love nor money. I, I ended up selling it to an 18-year-old for about 900 quid who wanted to modify it, which I was absolutely gutted about because this car was completely standard. Um, and to this day, I sort of vaguely, I, I bitterly regret selling it. I could, even on the owners' forums and stuff, I was desperately trying to sell it to somebody who wanted to keep it as a kind of, you know, because it would have been great to do it up as a concourse car. It would have been perfect. Oh. But nonetheless, there you go. Times have changed. Times have changed. Times have, Times have definitely changed for the GTI, that's for sure. <laughs> so, so now you're on the list uh, of the staff um, as a staff. Is, is that because you were a staff writer or because? Yeah, right, okay. I, start, well, I started at Autocar as picture editor, actually. All right. Um, it was, uh, yeah, so they sort of gave me an opportunity to, to just get started there and see how things work properly. And, um, and that was really good. And to this, I mean, picture editor is a tough job, actually. It was really tough, but um, it was good fun. So, so what does a picture editor do then? Well, at that time, um, I mean, these days it's probably changed quite a lot. But in 2006, which is when I started at Autocar, you, I mean, I was still actually in the archives a lot and digging out actual film. Um, you know, proper film and using light boxes and stuff to pick the photos and sorting all of that out. Um, and it was just, but it was just after the switch to digital. So it was managing the managing the photographers. It was finding stuff in the archives. It was making sure that all the pictures were in and correct and all that stuff. And it was really good actual sort of tuition in cars as well because you know you had people at that time. You know, Richard Bremner was working there as a staffer and all this as well. So you had this incredible kind of encyclopedic knowledge around you so you could sort of go you know is this the you know is this the right say at cupra you know r or is it um you know is it is it the lesson or whatever all this kind of stuff so and they just knew it off the top of their heads so and it was it was brilliant i loved it so yeah how long were you doing that for uh, i did that for a year before i became a web reporter um which i did for another year and then i moved on to the road test desk yeah web reporter that's a title that'll never be used again no, probably not. No. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So then, what were the uh, sort of cars when you were when you were um, testing cars and stuff? What were the sort of cars that you started out with? Because I'm presuming they didn't say, "Here's the latest Aston Martin keys. Off you go." <laughs> I, uh, I'm guessing there's a little bit of a pecking order in offices. <laughs> There is. You would be surprised sometimes what does end up kind of drip, sort of dripping down to the to the, low, the lower, uh, you know, the pond scum at the bottom of the staff. 
that um, my first international launch was actually for the Fiat Scudo van, which was remarkable. And that was, uh, that was a spectacular trip because that was a Fiat launch of old. And it was, I think, sort of two nights outside Tuscany in a food and wine, you know, hotel university. It was ridiculous, unbelievable. So we and got I to I look at the van, but not actually get just, in it. Nobody at home. Almost nobody actually bothered driving it. I don't think it was just kind of. You know, we did. We did. Of course, we did. Um, so it sounds like a Roy Lanchester special. Yeah, it was the very last sort of vestiges of of the the old old school sort of good slash bad days of motoring journalism. I think really it was. Um, it was stunning launch, but yeah, even the executives didn't appear to actually care about the vehicle. They'd much rather talk about the wine and stuff. So yeah, it was just kind of, <laughs> yeah, but it was good. So that was my first international. I remember Skoda Fabia Estate as well, the second gen Fabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether it be second gen. Yeah. So it was, um, that was another of my first internationals and that was cool as well. That was out in split. So you do, yeah, you, of course you do. You start off with the more kind of everyday humdrum stuff and you work your way up but I think that's as it should be I think you need to learn first how to be excited about a Fabio estate and a Fiat Scudo before you can then move on to figuring out how to be excited about you know an Aventador or a Huracan or and and telling us that it is actually worth paying attention to and oh, stuff yeah. like that and, and it's what you were saying earlier about how to how to get that message across um mm. I mean partic- yeah, definitely. particularly today where I mean I think if we did with the the Focus Astra segment, if we did just silhouettes, you'd be hard pushed to spot the differences because of, well, the current fads of design, but also the safety regulations and everything that things have got to be a certain angle and that sort of stuff. Um, So it's trying to get that. I mean, that is, uh, it sounds like doing the, um, it's going to sound so naff, but no, it's not the lesser vehicles, but the more commonplace, more Cars that people will see on the road. It's the mainstream stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, see, that's why you use words. You're very good at it. Um, <laughs> if only I used a medium that didn't have words involved. Never mind. Um, but if you can, if you can make that interesting, you can uh, show people why they need to pay attention and why um, it's worth their money or not, as some yeah. are the case. Then, yeah, it's it's a, definitely a crash course in that because it's easy to go, as we've seen particularly lately, if, without using the I word, um, you if you get a picture of some exotic piece of metal and maybe do a bit of sideways with some smoke coming off tyres, then, you know, that's that's easy relatively yeah. compared to going, right, here's the new Astra and this is why I, you should give me five minutes of your attention to, yeah. to tell you why it's worth it. But I do think that most of the good, you know, I think the good motoring journalists actually do get excited about the mainstream stuff because at the end of the day, you know, the new Ford Focus or, you know, the new Astra or the Skoda Fabia Estate. I mean, I remember, I mean, I, I do find that stuff real. I mean, I remember when the Fabia, you know, the Fabia Estate launched, they were talking about how, you know, the rear seats were slightly higher than the front seats and all this stuff and the actual thinking behind it and that, you know, it was really clever. And, and I appreciated the fact that it was, you know, a good value, small car that had loads of space and all this stuff. And I genuinely am geeky enough that I do, I do enjoy that. Um, and I do like all that stuff. And I, and I like hearing about all the weird and wonderful details that engineers go in, go into to make these kind of mainstream cars happen. And if you talk to any of the designers, you know, you talk, I remember interviewing um, Luke Donkervolk who did the, 
Um, he's, he's got a sort of spectacular record because he did the Audi A2, but he also did the um, Gallardo, mm-hmm. Lamborghini Gallardo and this kind of thing. So he's kind of done both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> if, you, if you talk to him, and any designer will say as well, that, like, you know, stuff like the Audi A2, which are quite groundbreaking sort of small cars, it was very sort of ahead of, ahead of its time, really. I mean, that's way harder, much, much harder than, than a supercar where you've got much bigger budgets to play with yeah. and, you know, you've got fa- fairly free reign. Um, and whereas if you're building a small car, which is going to have small profit margins and all this kind of stuff, it's way harder. And I have I have great uh, respect for anybody who manages to produce a car like that. And I do find it exciting to write about as well because I'm sad like that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it is easy to knock. Uh, and I'm I'm as guilty as anyone, perhaps more so, of knocking certain designs and going, why is that like that? And and yep. particularly following uh, quite a few designs that I do, and then you see the sort of design community then. Mm. It's very interesting to see how different the design community usually are compared to the motoring journalists when it when they're talking about cars, particularly the more mainstream ones. Um, you'll see a lot of, because obviously the designers will go into a lot of details and it and they'll they'll hone in on things and go, well, that's not right because of this and that. And then you get the motion journalists go, I really like the look of that. And it got lots of looks while I was driving around and stuff. So, so it, it, yeah. it must be such a difficult job for designers. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I was driving the BMW i8. And I mean, I think that's quite a controversial car. I mean, I absolutely love the way it looks. I think it's one of the most spectacular looking things ever because it's so original. It's the future. I, mean, I always say that to the kids when we see it. I said, there's the future. And they go, oh, where, where's the i8? You know, because I, I think it's stunning. I mean, it, yeah, I do. Now, how many years later, it still looks like the future. It still looks like, exactly. And even the i3 as well, which I love. And again, it's one of those, you know, I mean, it's such a, it's such a brilliant, groundbreaking little thing, the i3. I, I know it's expensive, you know, realistically, but still, it's, it's just wonderful and I think that sort of design where clearly the designers have literally been, you know, have almost got within reason free reign given the materials they've got and this kind of thing. And it's just, you know, real blue sky stuff because you're right. I mean, I, I, I do find it interesting to write about the new Astra or whatever, but modern cars do all look kind of much of a muchness in, in many ways. Mm. So when you see something like that, it's just such a kind of jaw-dropping, extraordinary thing. Yeah. I mean, it's why I probably would have an i8 over a 911. Much as I love the 911, and it's objectively the best car on every in every in every possible way, it's the best car. <laughs> and yet, I probably would have an i8 because I'm a you know I'm an incurable show off, and I love the way it looks. It's spectacular. It just makes me feel like some kind of hero or something. It makes you feel like a child every time you see it. It's so cool. Well, it but, must be an event every time you go anywhere. Yeah, totally. So um, you know, I do I do love it. But there you go. So yeah, sorry, we've we've slightly gone off topic here. Um, so uh, after. Um, after doing uh, quite a few of the more mainstreamy stuff, when did you move up to staff writer? How long was that? Um, so I was only web reporter for about a year to 18 months, something like that. And then I moved up to staff writer. Uh, no, I was staff writer. It was a bit weird. I, did, I, was, I was road tester immediately after web reporter. And I was road tester for about, blimey, three years, something like that. And then oddly, I went to a role which had the job title of staff writer but was more senior actually than most staff writer roles because what it was effectively was being in charge of sort of video quite a lot. So I organized the video calendar and I did a lot of feature thinking and I organized the sort of every month Autocar did a sort of a, a sort of brochure that went with thing, kind of a special edition brochure and this kind of stuff. So I kind of helped to edit that and came up with ideas for that. And so it was almost a bit more features editor than staff writer. And it was, yeah, and that was actually really, really cool. 
And so, yeah, how long had I been at Auto Car by that point? So that would have been about three, four, five, so something, something. I lose track now, really. But yeah, so I was at Auto Car until 2013, and that's when I went to Watt Car. And I, so I was on the road test for the majority of that, but I did have those other roles of starting a picture editor, web reporter, road tester, then staff writer, weirdly, and then I went to be deputy road test editor at Watt Car in 2013. Um, so yeah, and, and became deputy register editor of both brands when they merged the editorial teams. So and over yeah. that time, you saw quite a you, you were you were in there while there was a real big shakeup and uh, so pressure on the motoring industry as well because of the because of the what of whole society because of the economic situation um, sort of mid to late noughties and then moving forward. So. Did you see a change in optimism in the manufacturers over that time? Um, I think there's just been such a drastic shift in in the industry. It's, I mean, it, a lot of it's to do with the sort of digital revolution, isn't it? With everything going digital and this kind of stuff. But because we had we had things like uh, uh, Dacia turned up over here yes. all of a sudden, yeah. and that was a big hit because you know we wanted or needed uh, affordable motoring and then you see the rise in the likes of kia and hyundai um as their design has matured and their quality has upped as well yeah. it looks like there's a lot of a lot of pressure yeah, apart from people weren't spending as much money but there was a lot of pressure as well in the in the industry because of that that and it was it's interesting because you see the likes of um, the one that leaps to mind is like Vauxhall under severe pressure because they're being pushed from above and below and Ford uh, would be as well because you've got uh, over that time people suddenly getting finance because that that was a thing that really became uh, a possibility where oh I can afford the three series now so I won't have the Mondeo or the Insignia. No well I think I think this is I think probably what you're describing is as much a result of the kind of economic changes as anything else, because obviously you had the, you know, you had the credit crunch and all that stuff. And there's been, even before then, I think there was a trend towards, it's the squeezed middle, isn't it? So yeah. you've got all the people in the middle who've got, you know, sort of just about enough money to afford a, a you know, a, a lower end three series on finance and everybody else kind of thinks, well, I'll just buy, you know, I'd rather have a top spec Clio or something rather than a Mondeo or something, whatever, because, and so, yeah, you do have that kind of that sector of cars, which are just being squeezed out of existence really now, which is, you know, I mean, granted, 20 years ago, they were some of the biggest selling cars going. So it's, it is a huge shift. But I think that's probably economic pressures. And I don't think there is I don't think there has been a change in the optimism of manufacturers because manufacturers are I mean, this is one of the things I like most about the industry is that it's such a fast moving industry, partly because the all the all the manufacturers are so forward thinking. And they do tend to obviously dictate the trends in some respect, mm. you know, how far ahead of itself was Nissan with the cash tie and this kind of thing, yeah. you know. So it's all that. And I'm terrible at predicting this sort of stuff. When the first, first, first cash tie came out and I drove it and I was like, well, it's all right. But I don't see what the fuss is about, you know, like I can't imagine it being a huge hit. And, you know, you know, lo and behold, here I am. Yeah. Eating my hat. But uh, <laughs> uh, so. Um, I think I think that's the thing. I don't think manufacturers have dropped any optimism. I think probably it's just a case of moving with the times, isn't it? And it's and it's it's very everything's changing so quickly in you know in terms of culture, society, economics. Every everything's shifting at the moment. So 
I think manufacturing will be what will will be on top of that, really. Most of them, anyway. Yeah. So you, you moved to what car? What sort of um, difference was that compared to auto car? Well, what car was? It was a big change because obviously, what car is is a is a consumer brand, so it's much more straight down the line, less enthusiast stuff. So it's it's very much a pull it apart, measure it to the nth degree, give the tangible, quantifiable facts about the car, decide which one's best, and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, it was definitely the brand that non-car people said, "Oh, I need to look, yeah. need to, I need to get a new car. I'll go and get the what car magazine, and I'll I'll check out or the site now." But I'll, yeah. I'll check it, check out, and then you've got all that data in there as well, particularly the back. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I did the yellow pages for Auto Car as well when I was there for a long time, and it's just a it's just a nightmare doing all that. But yeah, it's. Um, do you know what? I think I think moving to What Car was a really good thing for me because, well, if I'm honest, uh, my heart of hearts, Auto Car, I think will always be home for me because it feels like a very my writing style is very naturally in line with auto car and, and also my opinions generally what car was such a kind of spectacular learning curve in terms of how to write for a consumer audience in terms of how to write very tight copy with a lot of information without it being you know hopefully without it being terribly dry and all this kind of thing and also it was really it was a whole other way of testing cars as well um and i think you know I think What Car's an, an amazing brand. I, I, I really, I do actually enjoy reading the, reading the magazine still and looking at the website, and I totally value their opinion. And I think the fact that they do, they're so straight down the line, objective, and and tan, you know, they're so kind of formulaic in the way that they test cars and stuff. And it was so interesting to see that and learn that and make the most of that. So it's kind of both ends of the scale. Having done Auto Car, whose, um, you know, whose opinion on enthusiast cars, I often you know, I nearly always agree with and all this kind of stuff. I might have their gen- opinion generally, but what car is kind of at the other end of the scale and I think having kind of mastered both of that, those, that sort of writing, I think is a really good thing for me. So, and I enjoyed it and it's a great bunch of guys and it's a fantastic title for anybody who just wants to know, you know, which car is the best value for money and what's the best for them. So, yeah. which is the majority of people. Was there any memorable uh, reviews you did there? Because they do like a group, a group test. Yeah, I did do a group test. I did a twin test on, um, it was an Infiniti versus, an, it was an Audi A3 saloon versus an Infiniti Q50. Mm-hmm. And I think I gave the Infiniti one star and the Audi five stars. Oh, wow. And that was a bit of a, um, yeah, that was a bit controversial. Did you get, but, did you get a phone call? <laughs> like, I spoke to them before everything was published and, you know, I ran it past them and obviously they were very unhappy. Um, and you know, I could understand many of their arguments, but in the end, uh, we we held our ground, and uh, I think it was justifiable. Isn't it? You know, it just it was just it was just a very expensive car as well as a not particularly great car. So it was a bit like, well, what you know, what what on what basis are you actually recommending this? It's less practical. It's more expensive. It's not as good to drive. It's going to lose value way quicker. It's more expensive on finance. It's not as flexible as well. And in what car world? There's literally, I mean, an auto car. It probably would have been. I I wouldn't have given it that lower star rating because there is something to it in terms of its character and rarity and it's kind of and that's a quality that that I do I do understand but I just I die yeah I don't really to this day I feel guilty and yet I would do the same thing again so I I don't like doing it but that's the honest reality of it but that's the point of having that uh formulaic um system uh, and is there is to is to try and take is to just present the facts 
as much yeah, as possible because that's that's what I that's how I always feel about it. if I read the book I am getting the facts here yeah I am I am exactly. getting it all down and now with these facts I am now better able to make a decision yes precisely. whereas you go to auto car or top gear or something it's very much the person's opinion coming into it as well and you yeah. and um if if you like the writer and you've agreed with them in the past you go oh, okay I that that make all right I know what they mean when they say that and this sort of thing so it that helps you as well but if you're just looking yeah. for pure facts then yeah absolutely and um I mean that you know what car the star ratings are organized so you know the car that what car believes is the worst in the class will get one star and the car that it believes is the best will get five so it's and it's sliding scale so they're updated all the time mm. So that's kind of the theory there. You know, the A3 was a class leader and we thought the Infinity was the worst in class. doesn't mean that it's actually a terrible or in, in any way, you know, unsafe or, you know, car. It's just the worst of that class of car. So It's a bit like, uh, well, not quite like, but it's similar when people talk about the NCAP ratings. Yeah. Um, people go, oh, well, that got, you know, one star. However, that one star is, mm. you know, equivalent of four star five years ago or something like that. So... If you're looking at it from that point, if you just need to bear in mind how it all works, that these things are constantly being updated. So um, how long were you at what car then? I was at what car until 2017, a deputy road test editor. Technically both what car and auto car because they did merge the editorial teams and I did quite a lot of, lot of writing for auto car as well at times. But yeah, so um, mostly what car, deputy road test editor until 2017, uh, at which point, well, I had a little bit of a break because I had a daughter and then I went to Drive Tribe to be road test editor for three months. And then I went from there to Motor One, mm-hmm. where I was road test editor for uh, uh, just under a year. So both of those titles, fun as it was and interesting as it was, and much as I actually don't regret it, it was a, it was a real, you know, going for the full, the full digital sort of thing yeah. and startup brands. It was all very exciting. But, I mean, Drive Tribe did a U-turn on where it wanted to go with editorial. So I sort of voluntarily left there. And then all the uh, all the fun, all the funding was taken out of Motor One as well in the last few months. So I've maybe done it from there. So it's been a bit up and down, but it has been good to see how the sort of you know new thinkers might be approaching the digital world with motoring, publishing, and this kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, I was I was very confused with Drive Tribe. Um, yes. Uh, initially, it sort of made out it wanted to be a, a sort of social networky typey thingy, and then. All of a sudden, the the talent that they'd brought on board, yeah, was not there. He's going, well, um, okay, I'm confused now. Is it because you've realised it's actually quite tricky and you didn't, you can't walk in and yeah, be you know in the top one or two just like that? It it does take effort and work, and and then they now they seem to be trying to produce content again. Yes, they are. As I understand, I mean, I have I have nothing to do with Drive Tribe these days, and I, I don't I'm not privy to what their decisions are. But um, I believe that they are putting a bit more focus on content now. I don't know. I think I mean the management's all changed again. I think so. They might have changed or got a different focus again. But yeah, it was you know at the time it was brilliant because also I got to work with Jethro Bobbington and Henry Catchpole, who are two of my favourite journos. Um, they're great guys, so it was really cool working with them. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was really cool. But um, you know, when I found out that they weren't going to be there anymore, I was like, oh, at this point, maybe this isn't really for me anymore. Most <laughs> one, and there you go. So yeah, yeah, and that's the team with uh, Alex Coy, John Quirk, uh, yeah, um, Sam Burnett, mm-hmm. so Tyler Heatley as well. So 
Um, and Motor One uh, was also it was uh, it was good fun. It was very interesting. Um, it was just a bit frustrating because you know money problems really. Yeah, but, but, uh, but I thought you were trying to do some interesting stuff with video, some some different stuff. I mean, I particularly enjoyed the two estates and an SUV uh, <laughs> review. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I like the way that that was just dropped in, you know, that the way that the, the SUV was presented because um, it was a Discovery Sport. Discovery yes, sorry. Yeah. You know, I'm just trying to remember the right terminology because Discovery, Discovery, and then there's the Discovery Sport. Because of the way they've changed it now to Discovery, I don't know how you're supposed to call the, the old Discovery. I, I, so I just call it the Discovery, Discovery. But I, but I like the idea that you got, here's two traditional estates and yeah. da-da, Thinking yes. this is what I mean, a lot of people will be thinking now when they think estate, and I'm glad it didn't win. Yeah, motor media I think struggles to to accommodate the fact that people don't buy in a lateral way. No. Most people don't go. I want uh, a large estate, therefore I'm only going to consider the five series or the E class or a V90, you know, or an XF or whatever. Um, most people go, well, I've got 400 quid per month to spend. I want something kind of posh and big. So, oh, I don't know, maybe a five series, maybe a disco sport, maybe, you know, whatever. I mean, you talk to people. I mean, I remember years ago, it really stuck with me. I had a Kia Proceed long-termer. This is like a few generations ago. And a woman came up to me and was like, oh, that's really nice. So I was thinking about getting one of those. I was like, oh, yeah. She was like, yeah, I mean, I had a Mondeo and I was trading that in. I was like, okay, fine. And uh, she was like, so I just wanted, you know, and then and I was looking at this, but then they had this on offer and she got a Hyundai Getz. And I was like, so you've gone from a Mondeo via a Kia Pro Siege to a Hyundai Getz, which is, and I was just like, this is completely mad. <laughs> a lot of people are like that. They'll sort of go into a dealer or look online or whatever, and they've got an idea of a budget. They know that they need to get, you know, their one or two or three kids in and they need to get some stuff in the boot. And they might have an idea. I think these days buyers are probably quite informed. Right. I think they do an idea of what brand they want to go to or what sort of shape or size of car they want but I think every I don't I don't think estates should be tested separately to SUVs and all this stuff because these days an SUV is as much a family car as it is a four by four or more well that's it I, I think the sectors now need to be like you know the family the large family car the family car and here's your options and yeah, uh, because exactly. this is what people are buying so the, the market has dictated these are the options. Yeah, I mean, it's just very difficult from from a point of, from a road testing point of view or from a writing point of view. It's so difficult to put together such a disparate group of cars. I mean, that worked because they, you know, they they all roughly hit the same financial costs and this kind of thing, and they were all trying to do roughly the same thing. But you know, you can't reasonably put a Ford Focus up against you know a, a three series estate or something yeah. because it's just it just doesn't work because in the end you're always going to say oh well the three series feels nicer inside and it's bigger because it is yes um, so people buy like that you know they might go they might say do i get a really really high spec fiesta or do i get a bogo focus mm. but you know that's and that i think a lot of people have that sort of conundrum because so, so many people are on the monthly payments aren't they now and that yeah. was it is it something like 80 percent of cars new cars are monthly payments so that has to be that has to be the starting point of the conversation, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tend to prioritise monthly costs over list prices in most of the reviews I do these days because it's such a critical aspect for most people. So, yeah, it's... Um, and again, that's difficult because they vary so much. So, you know, depending if you lease it, if you PCP it, if you, you know, whatever. Um, buy it through an online dealer, it's all kind of different. So, um, but still, that's how people buy cars, and the motoring media, I think, have been a bit slow on the uptake with that. And really, you know, I think now, you know, especially with 
car wow and this kind of thing as well. I think people are responding to it now. But yeah, because it's, it, it's it's remembering that us in the in the nerdy car corner, we're we're a very tiny corner. And yeah, there's a ton yeah. of people out there, which with, with a lot of them, they just want to know, is it in my budget? Is it relatively cheap to run? And can I get all the stuff I need to in it? And yes. or, and possibly, or for a lot of them, is it easy to get the kids in and out of? And that, that's that's the criteria, really. Yeah, because I, I see it with parenting bloggers. Sorry, I'll just cut you off because I'm incredibly rude. Um, but I see it with a lot of parenting bloggers. You read their reviews of a car. Yeah. They don't care about the the talk they don't that hardly gets mentioned until the bottom when they've they just list some facts and figures they don't yeah. care about talk they don't care about naught to 60 they just want to yeah it felt okay to get off you know to do my normal journey and oh it's got a infotainment system with apple carplay that was a bit of a shock and things like that that we all moan and yeah. grumble about because <laughs> we're, we're prodding and poking them so often and going well this doesn't work you know and somebody just most people don't care about a lot of that and it's it's trying to get that crossover, I think. There's, yes. there's an awful lot of people that would benefit from a bit more education, but it's not flooding them with stuff so they just go, oh, I can't be bothered listening, watching that. Yeah, well, I, but I think road testing 101 is, is to start by thinking about who's going to actually buy the car. And obviously that is difficult these days because there is such a broad demographic with a lot of cars. Mm. But yeah, I think if you start there... Um, then you can't really go wrong, and that does count for if you work, you know, if you're writing for enthusiasts or for, um, you know, a consumer audience. But yeah, you're actually right. Like 95% of the people out there actually probably wouldn't know what you're talking about if you talk about, you know, body roll or talk and this kind of thing. Let alone if you start talking about, you know, damp and rebound and wall rates. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, and that's I think I mean go back. That's why what car is such a success is because it's always been really really keyed into that to that majority of. of you know the average buying public, so yeah. that's what it's about. Yeah. So yeah, but I think there, are, yeah, there's there's more competition out there for those sort of consumer things now, and uh, I think the motoring media is, is is finally catching up with it. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I have noticed improvements in that in that area. Um, another one of your videos I enjoyed was the head to head with uh, Mr. Goy and the Golf and the i30. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now that looked like it was cold. <laughs> it was. Yes, it was very cold. Um, it was very cold, but Wales is normally, well, either cold or absolutely scalding. 95% of the time just cold and normally wet as well. Oh, it's, it's, it's guaranteed wet if Alex takes a 9-11 there. Yes, that, that seems to be the law. As soon as he crosses the borders with one, then it seems that it's monsoon season until he yes. leaves again. Absolutely. Well, I remember uh, years ago with what car I did a group test up there and um, it was literally it was about 25 degrees and bright sunshine it was the middle of summer in the everywhere in the UK apart from the one hill that we went to in Wales where it was about 10 degrees and horizontal green. And I was wearing like you know flip-flops and a skirt and I was like what the hell are we doing here why are we here this is insane so yeah it's one of the most reliable things in the uh, in the world is the weather in Wales but it was very cold but the cars were epic and um I did. I think Hyundai have done a great job with the i30N. I really like it. It's got such a sort of. It's almost like a kind of budget Focus RS feel to it. It's got that sort of real gritty kind of raucous feel to it, which I really enjoy. It felt I think the fun. It felt fun and not diluted. Or yeah. Um, I know the sound is a bit manufactured, but it didn't feel manufactured in a. I press a button and it will that's when no. you can have that's the only time you can have fun it just felt fun all the time even if you had it in the 
softest inverted commas there softest yeah. settings please make a softer yeah. setting on the suspension for old broken people like me but uh, i've i've nagged at them about that <laughs> but yeah it it was one of those cars i found that made me it, it was sitting there going come on let's go for a drive go for a drive and i think we've it's easy to forget that driving we all like driving because it's meant to be fun so often yes. so yeah exactly i think i think you know coming out of absolutely nowhere that car's pretty remarkable um i mean like i said i mean i stand by what i said in the video i think i think the golf is the better car but i do totally appreciate the appeal of the i30 yeah and i think it's great so and i do just like as as yeah as i said i just love the fact that it does it's just it's always a hot hatch it's not like the golf where it just settles back and it's just a golf which is kind of frankly a bit boring it's always got that kind of flamboyance to it which is wonderful but um yeah so i really love it for that very honest car i think the i30m okay so what are you what are you doing now because you mentioned about the redundancy so are you freelancing yes i'm now officially freelance and i'm quite enjoying it actually i've done loads of stuff already um so and i've only been freelance a couple months but um i've done a video for car magazine which will be out fairly sort of sort of a viral video for car magazine which will be out quite soon um i've done a little little review for autocar i'm doing loads for the telegraph which is great fun i really enjoy writing for them so been on the wrangler launch and done lots of stuff off the back of there and the wrangler's just awesome as well so <laughs> i love it it's so cool it's sort of on the on one hand it's so terrible on the road especially on off-road tires that we drove it on it was just kind of hilariously bad in some ways and yet it's just so good it's just such a brilliant sort of analog feeling you know, fairly unipurpose car, and it's just so far removed from you know the SUVs of today, really, that it's just wonderful. I just absolutely love it. I want one. It's really great. So, were you driving with the windscreen down and all that? No, we had the windscreen. It was uh, weirdly actually. It was about it was raining and about eighteen degrees in Austria. It was a bit of a shock. You go from the UK in, the, in this you know very uncharacteristic bout of actually having a summer, and um, yeah, and in Austria it was freezing. So you know we had we had the the windscreen up and all that, and we did proper off roading, and it was exceptional. I love it. And I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not terrible on road, but by modern standards, it's fairly terrible. It's kind of life and stuff. I'd give it that. I'd live with it. I think it's lovely. I really enjoy it. So yeah, it's cool. Very cool. Didn't you just do, an, or was it recently, uh, an article about, um, going back to a, a pet thing of mine, estates and SUVs, hmm. um, where you... The blog, yes. <laughs> you suggested that perhaps we shouldn't ignore estates yes i do well i mean i had the audi a4 avant recently and um sorry the audi a4 all road uh which is an avant and yeah i just it's just such a great car and i just wonder why i mean i do, i know why it's just a fashion it's it's sort of this kind of unavoidable desire that we all have it's kind of an aspiration to an suv which i think most of the car buying public has these days hence hence why car manufacturers are responding to it um, but yeah, and I was just driving this A4 and I was just like, it's such a lovely car. I mean, it's ultimately, it handles better than most SUVs. It's more comfortable than most SUVs. In many ways, it's more practical and cheaper. And yet, you know, they'll sell so few of them compared to how many Q5s they'll sell and this kind of stuff. And it's just a bit of a, I mean, it's actually a much more common sense thing really in a state. And I just love them, I think. And there's, you know, especially to an extent, the sort of posh 4x4 estates that you can get, the B90 Cross Country, and even stuff like the Octavia Scout, that kind of stuff is, is, is awesome as well. It's yeah. like such a great all-round car. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, I've always loved estates though. You know, I own a 3 Series Touring at the moment and this kind of stuff. And 
I've always I've always been a big estate fan. I'd nearly always have an estate over the saloon, even if I didn't need to, because I've got a dog and stuff. So yeah. yeah. Well, I, I've the few times I've I've driven an estate. I love an estate, um, and and I think that will probably be our next vehicle because I have so many small people to deal with. Yes. <sighs> Never mind. Um, so no one else to blame, really. <laughs> no, no one else. No, no, I can't blame anyone else. But whenever I've driven them, particularly modern ones, I just feel that I know something most people don't. Mm. I'm going around and thinking, this is better in so many ways, yeah. cost-wise, that I can I can drive it enthusiastically if I need to. You know, if I happen to be alone, those brief moments, uh, that sort of stuff. But I can chuck everything in and it, it will go away. It's, it's going to be more economical, you know, monthly costs. Oh, I just think I know something you don't. That's And I'm going, whilst I'm happy about that, I, I would like more people to know it. Otherwise, they'll stop making them. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't no. want that to happen. It's um, well, it does feel a bit like the thinking man's car these days, doesn't it? The estate it feels like a bit of a you know, like you take you've taken a distinct decision to not buy an SUV. It's that yeah. kind of like you're you're suddenly you've been bloody like, minded and yeah, exactly. Like, no, I'm going to buck this trend. I will not take your SUVs. I will buy this car. It's better. Um, and in, I I think they kind of are, but and I would add a caveat here. I do have a thing for really for, for big proper. SUVs. I mean, I, the Range Rover is just, I just love it. So I have to confess, if I won the lottery, I would probably buy a Range Rover, which would mean I'd have to eat my words about estates and stuff. I don't know. Or maybe an E63 estate. Maybe I'd go down that route instead. But, or maybe both if I'd won the lottery. Yes. But uh, I have to say, I do I do love the big, proper, posh SUVs. I do have a, have a soft spot for them because I think they are lovely. Yeah, but, the yeah. big, huge one I'm fine with is when it gets smaller. Because yeah. people, because a lot of people, I've talked at the school gates and stuff with with parents, and they say, "Oh, I've got this. I've gone and got you know the the cash cow, or I've gone and got a yeah. Peugeot, or whatever it is." And they go, and said, "And you know why? It wasn't that much bigger than you know whatever they just replaced it with." Because well, yeah, all you've done is just gone mm. higher. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you've done. You you now have yeah. allegedly mm. better visibility. Uh, yeah. that's that's what you've done you sit higher you're a bit more imposing on the road and but otherwise yes. it's still the same size and yeah. people just still aren't grasping that i know well i mean how many q3s did they sell and you know and the audi q3 is is actually significantly less practical than an audi a3 because it's actually really quite pokey inside and i don't know whether people really got that um but yeah that's i think that's my beef with it all is that i don't you know i understand that people like SUVs and that they want SUVs without the costs associated. I, I understand that, and that's what's driven all of this. But I just, you know, I don't understand why, like the, the Volkswagen T-Roc, which supposedly kind of replaces the Scirocco, and the Scirocco was wonderful. It was a proper little sports coupe. It was brilliant. Exactly. And the T-Roc is just another kind of, kind of, kind of sports urban SUV thing with a with a trick back, back pillar. <laughs> And it's, you know, and it's a, it's a good car and, you know, you can get a contrast colour roof, which appears to be like, you know, number one thing for everybody at the moment and all this kind of stuff. Like, <laughs> Personalisation. <laughs> it just, it, yeah, I suppose as we've alluded to, it's it's the sort of sameness of a lot of stuff and it bothers me that everything is taking on SUV characteristics and calling that a great selling point and all this stuff. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, I actually, I actually get, I think I get stuff like the Renault Catcher more than I understand the sort of mid-range 
GLCs, T Rocks, Q3s, all of that stuff. I'm a bit, I'm just a bit, I'm just left cold by it. I, there's, there's, there's sort of a vacuum in my soul where the sort of mid-sized coupe SUV thing lives, and oh, I just don't. I, I don't understand. like the coupe SUV thing at all. That that just seems to be let's have the worst of both worlds. Uh, but and people buy them. <laughs> Well, exactly. And so, you know, if I were in charge of a car company, I'd be making them. Yeah. I sincerely hope I would. Otherwise, I'd probably be out of a job. But yeah. um, it's... From a business point of view, you, you totally understand why they're doing it. Absolutely. Um, um, but as a car person, you'd hope they'd be trying to push something else as well. Yeah, but then you do, you do get the... Yes. Because it cycles, though, because we had the MPVs, which yes. again... People thought, oh, this will solve all my problems. Actually, if I put the back seats up, I have no luggage space. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because no, what you want, you need something massive for what you want. You have to realise that, that there, in this size, only so much will go, no matter yeah. how clever the seating is. I mean, I have to say, it's it's maybe I am a bit sort of two-faced about the SUV thing, because like I said, I do love a proper big SUV. I ran a Kodiak for like nearly a year. And it was just wonderful because it was just the biggest car in the world. Mm. And so you could get anything in there. Um, plus, it was the seven-seat version. So, and, and it was just brilliant for my life. And I've got a little girl and a big dog and all this stuff. And I'd traipse up and down the M3 to family all the time and with buggies and things. And, you know, and, and, and in that respect, I actually I – I would probably buy a Kodiak over most estates at that price – most I do love a superb estate having said that so I'm quite conflicted about the SUV thing because one, one, on one hand I understand it and I get it when it's a proper SUV yeah. but when it's when a kind of a dinky middle of the road slightly SUV-ish not quite sure what it is whether it's a sports car or an SUV or a hatchback or whatever then I just get fed up of it and I just it just it just loses me at that point I just don't really get why you would but yeah the the sitting up higher when I've done it I get the attraction of that yeah. I get the the attraction, but if we're all at that height, then you've got to go higher again. Yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, it's 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 starting a sort of arms race. <laughs> but you know what? I'm probably going to have to eat a lot of my words here because I'm actually going to be running a Volvo XC40 for a few months. Oh, okay. Um, and, well, and that one to... interests me. Yes. Because me that's too. been aimed at urban. Yes. And it's one of the few small. SUVs that doesn't look like it's about to tip over. Yes, I think it looked great, really do. And um, and I've got a contrast roof, obviously. Obviously, well, and, um, obviously. And uh, no fashionista does without. <laughs> it's one of the first of those small SUVs that I've driven, which to me actually feels like a kind of reduced Range Rover rather than sort of a jumped-up hatchback. I'm interested in what yeah. I can't put my finger on why at the moment, but something about it really appeals to me in a way that the others of that class don't actually. So I'm interested to try and figure out quite what that is about it. That's kind of grabbed my attention so much because I do really like it. So maybe it's because Volvo aren't a builder of small hatchbacks or that size yeah. car anyway, that they've had to come at it with yeah, fresh maybe. eyes and, and maybe designed it from a slightly different perspective instead of going, here's our existing thing can we stretch yeah. it a bit and everything and maybe put a few more cameras on because we'll reduce the windows yeah. even more in the back peep designers if you have if you do not have children get children and yeah. sit them in the back of cars before yeah. you do that anymore because there's only clearing up child sick gets very dull very quickly <laughs> yeah 
absolutely. God, I, I'm with you on that one. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, so we'll see what the XC40, because I, I, I absolutely love it so far. And uh, well, I haven't got it yet, but when I do, I'm very excited to see what it's like. But, yeah. yeah. I'll be very interested to hear what you say about that, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I would like to now ask you some of the quickfire questions okay. to round out this chat, because I don't want to take up your entire day. What currently excites you about the motoring world? Alpine. Um, okay. Because it's like uh it's like they've built a car to my specifications i can't tell you how excited. i mean honestly when i wrote when i wrote the um when i wrote the first drive for the alpine a110 when i drove it in france i nearly cried at the end i was just like so overwhelmed <laughs> how wonderful this car was um and uh, so i think that's what i'm most excited about at the moment is is alpine where it might go fingers crossed you know they might do something special next as well but i mean i think the a110 is just spectacular it's either that or I have to, I mean, electric cars, I know it's a very hackneyed answer to this question probably, but I am really interested in where that's going and, and the sort of big boom that's going on there and, and that kind of stuff, because I do enjoy driving electric cars. So, and being, as I said, a geek in terms of the, the, the interested in the mainstream as much as the performance stuff, yeah. that I'm, I'm intrigued to see where that goes. So, yeah. Okay. What currently worries you about the motoring world? Uh, kind of diesel, I think. If we're, I, I'm very angry slash worried slash generally frustrated that diesel is being so demonized for no real good reason as far as i can tell i'm we're perfectly willing to accept the uh, the you know emissions issues with the older diesels but people still don't seem to be getting the message that actually modern diesels post euro six are virtually as clean as petrols and they're 30 percent more efficient and people don't and you know, i diesels are wonderful they're just so brilliant i mean that a4 all road i had three liter v6 diesel automatic gearbox I'll do 40, 45 mpg, you know, it's fast, it's quiet. If I'd had the petrol, I would have been doing 10 mpg, 15 mpg less. And, and, yeah. But it just doesn't make any sense, you know, it's just... It just... Well, the, narr the narrative's being run by the anti-car, anti-diesel brigade. That's the problem. It's not and, and you've got politicians who are, and we are particularly blessed at this current time of recording, to have a fantastic set who are representing us as a nation, uh, who happen to go, oh, what's the audience I'm in front of? Right, I'll say it this way yes. this time. Right, oh, it's the other lot. This is, okay, and now I'll say completely the opposite this time. So you, in the, there was a survey recently that was um, produced that said something like 58% of people were thinking of ditching diesel and 42% of, of that, and I, I could be wrong with this, uh, the, the exact figures, but a large portion of that were worried because they're expecting uh, tax hits on diesel, but nobody's announced right. that. So they're going to look to step away when, when for quite a lot of people, it's not the right thing. Well, I mean, to they, do. I mean, they have announced the tax stuff on company car because I mean, obviously they were they were oh, gonna, yeah, well, they messed that up. You know, they? they've completely annihilated the appeal of diesel cars to company car buyers, which is a huge portion of the market. Um, and yep. and you know, it's just. Oh, and watch our CO two levels oh, rise. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, it's like they're just picking. <laughs> picking one drum to bang and deciding which one's the most important to that particular moment. And they'll just conveniently forget what they've been banging on about for the last decade or two, you know, and it just frustrates me because I, you know, I think diesel engines are, are great. I'd buy a diesel car again because I do a lot of miles and economy really matters to me. And I think diesel engines are very, very good. And I wish people would think very carefully about, about that because I, I mean, you know, I doubt there's much that, you know, the motoring, well, maybe there is a lot that the motoring media can do. Maybe in some respects we're to blame, but you know, the, 
the dramatization of it, I think, has been grossly unfair because diesel engines are very good. They're very clean. They're more efficient than petrol engines. Uh, and I think we're foolish to be pushing people out of, out of diesels when they would be the better car for them. Um, at the end yeah. of the day, also, what seems to be forgotten is fossil fuels are a finite resource. And we're therefore going to be using way more petrol than we would be if those people were in diesels. It just feels like the whole, the, the actual kind of, you know, the significant arguments have been forgotten about in favour of just jumping on the, you know, the, the eco bandwagon. Well, I, I think yeah. probably we'll see the silver lining will be a, will be a real push in, in the advancement of electric cars. Um, I, it does bother me greatly that I, I, I wish people had a bit more common sense about the diesel thing, not least our politicians and, and the government, you know, should incentivise it. I just think it's silly, but hey. Yeah, a lot, a lot of time the way it's reported in the mainstream press as well on the front page is, is not helpful. Um, but if you talk to, I mean, you'll have had this yourself when you talk to your non-car friends, they, after Dieselgate, they think, well, they're all at it, aren't they? Yes. Uh, and that's that's the general perception yeah. with no backup of fact in this in any no, shape or form. I know, I know. But the perception is, well, they're all fiddling it, aren't they? They all con the, the things, the, the tests. And it's like, well, actually... It's not quite like no, that. <laughs> it's not. Um, and also to the consumer, well, don't get me wrong, uh, you know, Volkswagen and all the others that have been have become, you know, uh, embroiled in it. Clearly, they were drastically in the wrong and they have and will be paying for it for a long time. But ultimately to the consumer, uh, I think it has again been blown slightly out of proportion because ultimately their cars are still the cars that they owned beforehand and they're just as economical and clean as they were beforehand. Um, so, yes, obviously... Volkswagen deserves to wear the hair shirt for that for a very, very long time. But, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It just, the diesel thing bothers me because I'm a big advocate of diesel and I think it's being very unfairly demonised at the moment. So, yeah, that's... Well, that's well, it's, it's not a debate, is no, it? No, and I, I think... That's, that's the problem. Yes, exactly. And, and I think actually because obviously manufacturers aren't going to invest in diesel now and, and you know, put the R&D into it, we're not going to see the next generation of diesels, which would have been even more remarkable because of this. So, yeah. Okay, then, uh, what has been your favourite car to drive and why was that? Uh, ever or recently or, I don't know. Um, you, can, you can do whatever you like. You can quantify it. Recently, as I've probably already said, the Alpine A110 was, was something of a... Uh, <laughs> Did you try to take it home in hand luggage? I would, yes, I would have done. Given the opportunity, I absolutely would have done. I just think it's the most spectacular thing. I mean... It's such a wonderful sort of happy medium between being almost like a kind of lightweight club car and almost Porsche Cayman-ish and somewhere in the middle and it's just just wonderful. I love it. I, I did I did almost cheer when um, Chris Harris was doing his review and he explained how the ride was comfortable. Yes. And yes. people have forgotten that sporty can actually be comfortable and doesn't yes. require needing a chiropractor after right. it. And you don't need adaptive dampers or anything either. It's just set up well, and it's light, and it's just and everything, and it's just oh, it's like somebody's been listening all of these years. Somebody's actually been listening to us, and they've made a nice, simple, pure, wonderful car, which is both sporty and, and delightful to drive, and also easy to live with without being overly complicated. And I just, I just love them. I want to sell everything and buy one and just go and live with it forever. So um, yeah. <laughs> I'm totally I shall I shall take it and hug it and look after it and call it stick. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. I just want to put it on my driveway and stroke it every morning. I'm just like, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm so pleased that it exists. And uh, I, yeah, so I'm totally besotted with that car. Best car ever. I don't know. I suppose oh, uh, the best car ever. 
I did. I drove a Porsche Carrera GT. That was pretty spectacular. And I also drove a Ford Superformance GT. I think those are probably the most memorable cars I've driven mm -hmm. in terms of like the Superformance GT is like 90% interchangeable with the original Le Mans Ford GT, GT40, I should say. And uh, it's, uh, and yeah, I mean, proper like dogleg gearbox in the sill, uh, full on like Steve McQueen style. Oh, it's just wonderful. I love it. So yeah, that was, that was really quite something. And uh, that was quite interesting because the only reason I got to drive that car is because I was at another of also cars, not to 100 to not days, and I needed to go to the loo. And uh, being a lady, I can't just go in the bushes like everybody else. So I just borrow a car. And the guy who had that was like, oh, I'll take this. So I was like, all right, then you don't have to ask twice. And so I'm napped off at Bronte Thorpe in that. And it's one of the most memorable. You were gone three days. Where was the toilet? <laughs> exactly. It was definitely the most memorable loo run I've ever done, that's for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, then, what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was uh, that? Um, I'm going to say it was the Alpha 4C because uh, I don't doubt that high expectations had a lot to do with it, but I was so bitterly disappointed in that car. I mean, don't get me wrong, a Toyota Aris hybrid is one of the most hateful things I've ever driven because it's just the most tedious and boring, and, and I, to this day I still hate it. Um, more than I hate that Infinity that I talked about because it's just so bland and tedious and completely like Magnolia in every way. Uh, I just didn't like it. Anyway, so yeah, uh, whereas the Infinity at least was interesting for being kind of bad in, in, you know. But yes, the Alpha 4C, I just, I mean, the build up to it, it looked spectacular. I mean, it's a, it's a carbon fiber tub and they've got Ferrari engineers involved and it's going to be amazing. And it just wasn't. It had old school turbo lag. It didn't even handle very nicely. The passenger seat didn't recline, it was uncomfortable, it wasn't fun, it didn't sound good, the infotainment system was terrible. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I know that... Some... And it was massively wide, because I, I came across one up in North Wales, going yeah. back to my parents, and I thought, I'm going to... We're on a two-lane thing here, and I'm going to have to find a passing <laughs> place in a minute. It's going the other way. I mean, it's enormous. Yeah, well, I don't... I, well, I guess maybe, yeah, but it's... Um, I just... I think it, I just felt like... It was one of those moments, it felt like all the stars should have aligned, the planets should have aligned, and it should have been wonderful and spectacular and a real renaissance moment for Alfa Romeo, and it was the biggest missed, missed mark of all. Um, and then, remarkably, you know, a couple of years later, they bring, they bring out the Giulio Quadrifoglio, and it's just awesome on every front, and that comes out of nowhere, you know? It's just the best thing, like one of the best cars of that year. I just, it's just, I, I would buy one of those. It's, it's genuinely, genuinely spectacular. And yet the Alpha 4C, which they were, you know, banging on about for years and it's going to be the best thing ever. And they had all the tech and, you know, lightweight. And it was just, just such a disappointment. So, yeah, there you go. Sorry, Alpha. <laughs> uh, what car would you like to own next? Ooh. Um... Now, this can be win the lottery or it can be being sensible and realistic. Okay. Uh, well, if I win the lottery, I'll go for an E63 estate. I know I said I'd buy a Range Rover, and I probably would, but I think I'd have an E63 estate as well because I do. I, I do. Go back to the show offness that you like. Yeah, exactly. Um, hear me, hear me roar. Hear me roar. <laughs> uh, yes. So maybe I'll have you know we'll we'll have an E63 and a Range Rover and me and the husband can swap and swap and choose when we want but we'll also have a plethora of other stuff including an Alpine I don't doubt and lots of lightweight stuff and classics and all all manner of things but yeah so uh, I suppose I'll go for an E63 AMG Estate realistically 
At the other, at the, okay, at the other end of the scale, weirdly, I have been looking very much the other end of the scale. I have been looking at diesel lupos and say out of roses recently because you can get them for like under a grand. And I'm talking about like you know, at the moment, uh, obviously I'm paying for my own fuel and stuff, uh, which obviously most people do, but it's it's a bit of a novelty to me in some ways and uh, an, an unpleasant one as well. It must be said. Yes. And, uh, Especially at the prices now. Yes, <laughs> And uh, but it's good. It's genuinely good for me to, you know. I think most motoring journalists should do this. Really, experience what us real people have to go through. <laughs> and um, exactly, it's amazing what you can write about. When you, Understand what the peasants have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, the yeah, and I'm looking at them, and they're such. And I've always actually really liked the Lupo anyway. And um, I'm genuinely wondering about buying one of these because I'm so interested in what kind of economy you get. If you can get like 70 MPG and stuff out of them and you can buy one for 700 quid. So it's just like, that's so cool. I'm, I love that sort of stuff. I really like that kind of hidden, hidden, interesting gems. And I mean, we buy, I mean, I buy, well, me and my husband, he's, he's also really into cars. We do tend to buy budget, interesting cars because I mean, he, you know, for his cars and things and we've had MR2s and five series and, 190e and all sorts of things and um so yeah at the moment we've got an old 3 series uh 320i and um a 2003 320i which is really lovely actually but is a six-cylinder petrol car mm-hmm. and is uh, sucking up the world's resources pretty quickly so i'm thinking <laughs> thinking about buying myself a properly efficient little runabout but yeah we'll but that that the lupo though we're talking of as we were earlier about the a2s ahead of their time yeah you know the up now yeah i know well, the Up is one of my favourite cars, actually. I think the Up is really such a great, talking again about the uh, sort of the exciting and interesting things about mainstream cars is the way that's being designed. All three of the, the, the badge engineered triplets. Um, mm. is, they're just so clever. They look great. They do the job. They're really quite practical. It's quite spacious inside for the, for the footprint of the car. Uh, and they're just a joy to drive as well and so cheap. So, I mean, I, absolutely, you know, credit to them because it's a, it's such, it's one of the best design jobs, I think, for a long time, really, yeah. in terms of a, for a mainstream car because it's unmistakable as well. You exactly, you know exactly what it is as soon as you see it. Yep. Um, and it's, and it's, it's more fit for purpose than almost anything else out there, I think. It's just wonderful. I love it. So, yeah, it's, uh, okay. I would consider one of those as well. So those are the ends of the scale. That's my lottery win and my in reality trying to save money. <laughs> G kind of uh, kind of options. <laughs> but that's what we that's what we all do though. Is kind of you know how often we go in there. Right, let's look at the eight hundred pound price range now. What is interesting in there and all that stuff when it's a, it's a quiet Sunday morning or something like that. Anyway, um, what is your favourite road to drive on? Um, I think. Well, I have to say, because I'm quite familiar with them, the roads around um, around Krakow in Wales, uh, some of my favourites, and also around Bala, that kind of area, which are very, they're very classic kind of car magazine territory, but um, I said, well, I mean, you know, any, I don't, yeah, automotive journalist territory, and um, uh, and they are wonderful. So, yeah, um, I think if I'm staying closer to home, probably those roads, or given a bit more time, I have to say, probably south of France, down around, you know, Col de Vance, you know, all that kind of stuff, really. So, yeah, Route Napoleon, you can't really go wrong with them. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty wonderful. Um, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Oh, my God. Um, 
foot-operated boots. I absolutely hate them. I really do. I cannot stand them. I don't. But the ones where you waft your yeah. your, your shoe underneath the bumper. Stand on one one leg and like wave your foot around underneath the, the boot underneath the bumper for ages until the boot opens. And then, like recently, a car I had had this fitted to it, and it had uh, it had well a it never seemed to pick it up when you wanted to. So it wouldn't work in the first place. It would pick it, and then it would pick it up at the last second. So you'd nearly get smacked in the face when the boot. <laughs> and then, as you were putting things into the boot, it would then shut the boot again on your head. And so you'd just be, you'd be like being eaten by the car constantly as you were trying to get stuff into the boot. It's the most infuriating thing. And I've never experienced one of these that actually works properly, that actually works reliably. Maybe I'm just not good enough at it. Maybe I'm not waving my foot in the right fashion or something. But and also, I don't really see the point. I mean. I mean, like I said, we've got an old three series and I managed just fine opening the boot, even holding a toddler and shopping bags and all this stuff. And I know how quickly the boot's going to open and when it's going to shut because I'm shutting it myself. So, (laughs) I'm Well, yeah, but electronic boots must be tricky with a dog. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I prefer manual boots. I don't actually really like electric boots even, but I'm now so, you know, know, resigned to the fact that they're going to be the norm pretty much forevermore. Um, but that's that's just okay. You get used to it, I suppose. But yeah, I prefer manual boots, but I particularly detest the foot operated. It's just one of those gimmicks that I think is so unnecessary and just complicates things more. So yeah. Okay, Doug. Uh, penultimate question here, and that is, uh, who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Now this is an interesting one because I was trying to think about this, and um, being the militant feminist that I am, I was trying to think of some of the interesting ladies in the industry at the moment. I think Rachel Hogg at Auto Trader might be interesting to talk to. Mm-hmm. There is also uh, a lady who I met recently, actually, I was interviewed by Top Gear and she was in the audience um, and she's called Jo Kingman and she is a photographer and she's really, she's, she's specifically uh, is trying to get into automotive photography or she is an okay. automotive photographer um, and you can find her under Skulls and Snaps on Twitter. And she's a really interesting, I think she's a really interesting lady. She's sort of, you know, I think she's had some hard times, but she's a great photographer. And she absolutely loves cars. Um, and she's, um, she's a real proper, proper sort of proper petrol head. So I think she's one to watch. I think she'll do well. And I think she'd be interesting to talk to. Okay, thank you very much. Um, there's a couple of things that I forgot to ask you about earlier on because I'm hopeless at this. Uh, and that is uh, you like to drive a fast car on a track, don't you? I do. Who doesn't? And, uh, well, you've taken a bit further than... Just track days, yeah. Because you were at the twenty-four uh, hour C one race at Rockingham recently, yes. Amongst yeah. other things, so you have you have a proper I have a person license. I do, yeah. No, I've raced. I've got my. I've got. I've only got my national BRs license. So I mean, I'm not. I you know, but I, I'm limited to the UK. They won't let me. They won't let me race outside of the UK just yet. I need a few more races before I can do that. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, the C one twenty-four hour race was. So much fun. Uh, honestly, it's one of the best things ever. It was, I mean, I'll be honest, the first, the night stint I did, which was my first stint, and it was chucking it down with rain, and I hadn't experienced it, the car in the wet before. And I mean, it's a Citroen C1, and it's mostly a road standard Citroen C1. Yep. Um, but they are on sort of Nankang tyres, which are quite sort of slippery and this sort of thing. They haven't got much grip, um, uh, certainly not in the wet. And I'll be honest, I, I finished that, I was, I was, terrified for the majority of that. I couldn't really see anything because the wing mirror had already been knocked off the car, um, non-contact sport, obviously. Uh, and um, 
it was just, I was honestly terrified. I didn't actually enjoy that first stint. By the end of it, I was like, I'm not sure I really want to do this again. This is just horrific. <laughs> so busy. There were cars all around me. And I have raced before. I did a Janetta race years and years ago, also at Rockingham, actually. Um, and, uh, but I'm not that experienced in, in racing. And oh, I did Burkitt six hour at Silverstone. That was wicked as well. But that was all in the daytime. It's nighttime, it was just a whole other thing, and there were all the lights, and it was just all a bit of a, and it was really slippery. You kept getting massive lift off oversteer if you like. <laughs> you know, it gets to the point where you have to kind of deliberately provoke it to do that, because otherwise it's just going to get you unexpectedly. So you might as well just like you know make it happen yourself when you want it to. Um, and uh, so unexpectedly, the C1 was quite a sideways car, but uh, it's. Uh, but then I did a dawn stint. Uh, just as the sun was coming up and it was it dried out a bit and I got my confidence and I built my confidence more and more and more throughout here and you learned the race craft a bit more and you figured out you knew the cars that you were faster than them and you could get past them and it and so it went and I mean after that dawn stint I would have you know given the night stint I was I would cheerfully have got out of the car half an hour earlier given the opportunity I would have I would have yeah. I just wanted somebody else to take over so that I wasn't in charge of not crashing this car um, and then, you know, the dawn stint was wonderful and I really built my confidence. And then by the end of it, I was one of the fastest people out there. So it was just kind of like that sort of progression through as you gradually built your confidence, figured it out, all this kind of stuff. And it was amazing because, I mean, I was sharing a car with Anthony Reid, who raced at Le Mans and does lots of classic car racing, which is bonkers. Um, and uh, I mean, it's Andy Prelo was in the garage next to us, which is, yeah. isn't like normal for a C124 hour race. I think that was a bit of a <laughs> But um, yeah, so there was some of the guys out there was, and yeah, he wasn't actually the fastest. But there was there was a team who were faster than him. So, I mean, you know, uh, it's remarkable. So really, yeah. like, really amazing spread of guys as well. So you had proper pros right through to absolute amateurs. Mm. Um, so it was just amazing. and virtually everybody made it through as well. Everybody finished, which is almost unheard of for twenty. And there wasn't any. Uh, horrific no 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 I mean you know people punting each other off and stuff like that I mean there was obviously well you could see with the pictures after nearly every car had the front panel dented where people have turned in on them but that... <laughs> yes I think there's a little bit of rubbing going on in some places but uh um generally it was it was pretty clean racing and I mean the guys that organize it are just they're so they're so good as well they're sort of you know they they do this mostly because they just love racing and so they're great guys. Um, and uh, I can't tell you what I saw. It felt like a real privilege to be able to do it. I just loved it. It was a real, it's a real tick off the bucket list for me because I've always wanted to do a 24 hour race. Right. And, that sort of, and that, that sort of weird kind of slightly hallucinogenic sort of 3 a.m. experience in the pits and stuff as well. It's just kind of, it was all part of it. I loved it. And the engineers as well, they were brilliant. So it was just, yeah, it was a real experience. And also the best possible way to do your first ever 24-hour race in a car like that, really, because it's, it's about as accessible and easy to drive as a race car can possibly be. Slow as you like. I, when I first looked at them, when I first went there and watched them for, on the test day, I kept thinking that they'd red flagged, that they'd stopped the practice session because I kept seeing them coming around the bowl at Rockingham. <laughs> I was still on the pit wall. And I kept thinking they were like at yellow flag pace. They were like half race pace, but they were actually flat out. They're that slow. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It was well, I, I experienced them at the um, race remembrance. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember the first time the safety car got deployed, which was quite quickly after the start. <laughs> um, it was in the uh, Mission Motorsport liveried F-Type. Yeah. That was the okay. that was the pace car. Yeah. And when they came in to change drivers, the three or four teams that were C1s all went up to race control and said, you're going to have to make him go slower. Yeah. We're at race pace just trying to keep up. 
And it was it was hilarious watching them because you'd see all these other fantastic cars go past louder and louder, and then yeah. you'd see the ridiculous CRV go past. Yeah. And then you'd wait a bit, and it'd get quiet, and then you'd see the C1 go past. No noise, you just yeah. see it go past. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's perfect for 24-hour racing. Yeah. I know exactly, and they do actually noise test them as well because they have to under regulations and stuff. It's just a it's just a joke because they make no noise at all. It's ridiculous, and they're about sixty horsepower. So I mean, yeah. you know, they're so slow, it's hilarious. But that's part of the fun because you have to kind of keep your momentum up. Um, yeah. And it's just yeah, it's just spectacular. It was great. It was great fun. I'm so pleased I did it. Yeah. Definitely. So you're going to do more racing now? I'd love to do more racing given the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, it's it is you do sort of get bitten by the bug. I think when you uh, when you when you have a go, it's, um, I mean, I love karting as well. I'm hoping to do Buckmore Park with some friends um, in a month or so. So we try and do that whenever we can. They do like really cool three hour endurance races and stuff there. Okay. Um, so I, I love karting too. So yeah, I mean, to be honest, anything that gives me an excuse to drive a car flat out is good by me really. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last question um, before I uh, say thank you for all this, but uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier. Is it um, is it easier? And I, I don't see. I was questioning whether to ask this question or not because I don't want to make it a, th- a thing, but or in any way negative. But is it easier for a woman to work in uh, automotive journalism now than it was, or with social media? Does it make it harder? Do you think? Um, I've always said, and I do still genuinely believe that my um, career progression has been easier because I'm a woman. I think being um, being a woman in this industry makes you sort of stand out a bit more. Okay. Obviously, that does have flip sides to it because of you know, as I said, if you're if you're in the spotlight a bit more, it also means that if you make a you know if you make a mistake, then um, People, you know, is he probably all the more noticeable and all this kind of thing? And, and people are very willing to say that, you know, you're only getting these advantages because you're a woman and all this stuff. And you know, but yeah. I think as long as you're, as long as you don't expect to get any breaks for the for just because you're a woman, I think as long as you're expecting to do the job just as a man would have to, then I mm-hmm. think it's probably an advantage because from a marketing perspective and from from the attention you get, I think it's it's a good thing. And also more and more people are open to the idea of seeing women presenting videos about cars and this kind of thing and giving consumer advice about cars. It's not that unusual now. There are quite a few other female motoring journalists out there who are doing it through social media, through various other forms, and through you know traditional magazines and this kind of thing. Um, and uh, it's So in short, I would say that I think it is a good thing to be a woman in this industry because um, I think you can take advantage of it as long as you do the job well as well as your male counterparts I think it's a good thing mm-hmm. um, but obviously you do end up getting you know all I'd say is just you know don't look at the YouTube comments because they'll be awful and uh, oh don't never look at YouTube comments that, that way madness lies <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah and be you know be brave you know have the conviction to, to believe your own opinions and, and you know and go from there and, and you'll be fine Okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, like I say, I, I didn't know whether to ask it or not because I didn't want to make it a, a mega thing. But equally, it, it would be wrong, I think, to ignore it. Yeah, definitely. No, because I mean, especially when I got into it, it it really was quite a rare thing um, to be to be a woman in the motoring media, especially through going through the traditional channels that I was going through with magazine journalism and auto car and all this kind of stuff. Now it's actually quite common to see women presenting videos about cars and this kind of thing. 
Well, you mentioned Rachel before. You know, there's yeah. the um, she, the, there's their new uh, series on uh, Auto Trader, which yeah. is which is excellent. It's really good, um, and so I think that's interesting. And more and more people are open to the idea that obviously women are a huge buying force in the car. You know, well, I mean, people have always known it, but I think people have struggled to tap into it. Yeah. And still do actually to an extent. So I think you know I think yeah, that's see it, cosmopolitan. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's always good. But I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, like I said, as long as you expect to do the, as long as you know that you have to do the job just as well as any man would, if not better, perhaps, then I think you could go. A woman can go a very long way in this industry. So yeah. Excellent. All right. Thank you for that. Um, so, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do then? Uh, I would check me out on Twitter. I'm at mm-hmm. Vicky Parrot, two R's and two T's. Uh, yep. And uh, I'm also, blimey, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of my stuff is on Telegraph Cars these days. So yeah, I would say those are the best ways to find me. Okay, no problem. I will have links in the show notes so people can click straight through and do that. Yep. And it just leaves me to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak to me. I've had a real blast. <laughs> Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing more of your um, right and proper posts such as buy estates, not SUVs. (laughs) Exactly, definitely. Yeah, no, I shall be doing more of that, I don't doubt, and probably buying really cheap Lupos or something as well in the future, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for that, Vicky. Take my own fuel and how miserable that is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) the realities of life. No one told it would be this hard. It's been a pleasure. So, yeah, it's all good. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. Thank you. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag ReviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. If you think what we do here on Rearview and the Motoring Podcast is worth some of your money, please do go and support us. If you go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support, you can find various ways in which to help us out. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I think that the guests that we get on here are fantastic and they have wonderful stories and I want as many people as possible to hear them. So please do go tell your friends grab their phones off them, forcibly subscribe them. No, don't do that, but just let them know about the show. That would be awesome. So until next time, that was Vicky Parrott. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring. <laughs>